Um, you had the, the great plague that took place and which took the lives of many of the young Hebrew, the, the, well, the firstborn of the Hebrew children as well as even the animals, firstborn of the animals. And we see now what the Pharaoh's response to that is going to be. And as we look at the response of the Pharaoh, uh, we're really getting into the idea here of what God can do. Um, again, oftentimes we are so narrow-minded with God, all of us, because we think, well, God don't do this, and God won't do that, and God can't do this. But, you know, God is God. God has unlimited powers, unlimited abilities. Uh, he can take anything he wants, do anything he wants with it. He made us out of dust. I mean, if he can make a human being out of dust of the ground, he can literally, it's just unlimited, the things he can do. So we should never doubt the abilities of God. Our lesson title again is Pursuit of Slaves. The text comes from Exodus 13, 17 and 14, 9. And there are several areas there related to scriptures I hope that you've stayed through throughout the week. The time is 1445 B.C. and the place is by the Red Sea. Let's go bow our heads for a blessing on God's word before we get into the reading this morning. Most kind, gracious Heavenly Father, God, Lord, as we study through your word this morning, Lord, we want to thank you first for it, Lord, that we know that the power that rests in your word, Lord, and we pray, Lord, as it is taught this morning, Lord, it is taught with power, Lord, that you give us an anointing as we teach your word, that uh, someone here be lost and undone, Lord, that your spirit would draw them and save them before it is too late, and we pray, Lord, for uh, the backslidden, Lord, that you would draw them closer to you, Lord, and help us all walk closer to you in every day of our lives. Help us be a witness to those around us and a light into our community, Lord. Help us show others their need for Christ. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. Help us teach your word the way you would have us to this morning, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray, and amen. In Exodus 13, 17, the word says, And it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest peradventure the people repent when they see war and they return to Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. He has straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are entangled in the land, the wilderness hath shut them in. And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people, and they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? And he took six hundred chosen chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and captains, ere every one of them. But the Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of the Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamping by the sea 
beside Panarath before Belzephon. And that was our golden text, so we'll go ahead and flip over to our golden text illuminate this morning. Our golden text illuminate says, The term of deliverance implies a rescue and freedom from bondage. When a successful presence and power of the thing that was responsible for the bondage is completely removed, in fact, brand new circumstances often accompany a successful deliverance. That is what makes a second chance so desirable and gratifying. My sanctified imagination leads me to believe that the accomplished deliverance of God's people from Egyptian bondage led them to believe they had been completely released from all Egyptian influences. Their deliverance surely was accompanied by a massive sighs of relief and the belief that they would see the Egyptians no more. Freedom was theirs to enjoy. There would be no more looking back. Yet when God delivered his oppressed people, there is deliverance of sorts for the slaveholder as well as for the slave. The slaveholder endures some form of divine judgment, but he is delivered from the spiritually perilous position of trying to maintain absolute control over another human being. Whether he benefits from that deliverance depends on his response to it. The slave experiences a liberation from oppression and servitude and resulting in genuine freedom and joy. I believe both these factors were in play as God sovereignly accomplished deliverance of his people from Egyptian bondage. A hint of this twofold dynamic is seen in this week's golden text. Pharaoh had decided to let God's people leave Egypt. He had finally released them from his control, but he had not changed his attitude toward them. He did not respond well to his own deliverance. He saw a chance to regain control when he perceived that the Israelites seemed to be aimlessly wandering in the desert. God would bring glory to himself and bring judgment upon the Pharaoh. Pharaoh now regretted his decision to let the Israelites leave Egypt, so he prepared to pursue them and return them to servitude. The Lord was continuing the process of hardening Pharaoh's heart, allowing him and his powerful army to overtake the entrapped God's people at their seaside encampment. The Golden Text offers a hint that God's people may have left Egypt with a haughty attitude. The phrase with a high hand speaks of a confident boldness, but it might also suggest that Israel departed Egypt with a sense of sinful pride. It is possible that they somehow delivered their accomplished deliverance uh, was a result of their own strategies and schemes. They need to recognize their dependence on the Lord. God was at work in both the slaveholder Pharaoh and the slave God's people. His deliverance would result in profound change in both parties. The result was that God alone would receive the glory rightfully due him. God had both parties exactly where he wanted them. The stage was set for the final acts of deliverance. God, does God desire to accomplish a divine deliverance in your life? If so, don't resist his work. And I think a lot of times, well, I know a lot of times, um, people do resist God. Um, we see it time and time again when it comes to salvation. Um, and I can say even from my own personal experience, I resisted God for quite some time before I was saved. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. He continued to extend his, extend his hand to me because he didn't have to. Uh, when I rejected him, I, I didn't. he didn't owe me anything. He didn't owe me the first reach out to me, but he gave it to me out of his grace. But even in church world, even with Christians, we see him resist God. And we're going to preach a little bit on that tonight um, about how people resist God. And a lot of times the reason God doesn't move in communities and don't move in churches is because people have resisted God in some way, in some format. Um, let's not for a second think that God cannot save people, that God cannot convict people, that God cannot send revival. God can do all those things. The question is, the thing that changes is the person in, in the church. Uh, if the church does not do the things to lead to revival, to respond to revival, uh, to respond to God, to follow God, to, to grieve the spirit of God, 
and then God doesn't move the way we want him to move. Um, and I don't think there's a person, well, at least I hope there's not a person alive in a church today that doesn't want God to move, but the question is how bad do you want it? Um, and a lot of people simply don't want it bad enough. Um, I, I have Christian friends that I look at their lives and I think, you know, you, you pray to God, you say you love God, but yet you don't follow God, you're resisting God, how much do you really love Him? And we have to ask our all, ourselves that question. And I, you know, I, we got to all examine ourselves, pastors, everyone included, we got to examine ourselves, make sure we are doing the things that God wants us to do, live in the life God wants us to live, and repent daily. So we'll get into our questions this morning. Um, you only have eight, I have ten. Uh, so I'm going to kind of go over the two that I that you don't have as well because they're good, really good questions as well. But number one asks, why did the Israelites not go directly to Canaan? So the Lord is wise and caring and realistic in his dealing with his people. He did not want to have his newly freed people journey through the lands of the Philistines since it would almost certainly mean war. Even though that way they would have been seen a shorter journey and even though he would have been able to deliver them from defeat, so instead he led them south through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Verse 18 makes interesting observation that they traveled harnessed a word indicating that the Israelites were arrayed for battle. Even though they were armed for conflict, the Lord knew that they were not warriors but former slaves. He did not want to see them lose their courage at the first sight of a formidable Philistine army and sink back to Egypt. And God is the same way with his people today. He's very loving. He's very caring. He's very realistic. Um, I believe personally that's why he does not want someone to get saved and then the next day be pastoring a church. Not only are they not read up, studied up, prayed up, and have the knowledge, but they're not spiritually mature enough to handle some of the battles that take place. Uh, and there are spiritual battles. And we all face spiritual battles, but it, it seems as closer you get to the front line, the more constant those spiritual battles are coming. Um, I, I mean, I know when I was saved, it seemed like you know no time at all went by and the spiritual battles hit because I was not serving the devil anymore. I was serving God. I was now a threat to the devil. So what does he do? Attack, 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 attack. And anyone who's ever been saved for any amount of time and hasn't been attacked, there may be a spiritual problem in your life you need to deal with because the devil attacks those are, that are against him. But yet God has a way, and the Bible says he provides a way of escape. God has a way of being there for the church when we are attacked. Uh, the Bible even talks about if we turn from the devil, he will flee. Which means if we don't give him the proper, what the, the, the do that he wants, if we don't uh, acknowledge him the way typically we always do, um, if we don't give him the credit that he does not deserve, he cannot have the impact that we let him have otherwise. Uh, too often we say, well, I, you know, I can't do no better. There used to be a guy on the Johnny Carson show, a comedian, always said, the devil made me do it. Um, and that's pretty much the church we're a lot of times today. They will talk about how mean that old devil is. But yet they never talk about what's resting inside them. That they have the almighty, all-powerful spirit of God inside them. And that they can very well overcome the devil. They have that ability to do so. 
But it's a lot easier sometimes to say, well, the devil's just got me in the corner and ain't much I can do about it. Uh, we, we begin to have our own little pity parties, and we all do it from time to time. We all get beat to death by spiritual things. But yet we are called to be so much more than that. We're called to be warriors railing against the devil. Um, that's why when we see our people that are, are new Christians and we see they are struggling, um, sadly, a lot of times we see people throw them under the bus, but what we ought to do is pick them up, pray for them, love them, and disciple them. That's what we're called to do. Um, that's why so many times you see people return back to Egypt, uh, live a life that's in the world. Uh, they may be saved, but their life doesn't reflect it because somewhere along the line that they have just gotten beat to death and no one has picked them up and carried them. You watch, I watch a lot of old war movies, and they always say you know, the big thing, no man left behind. Well, a lot of times the church world is we're leaving people behind, and we really shouldn't do that. If the churches all around the world would take and pick up members when they became weak, hurt, or burdened, or have sin issues, pick them up, pray for them, disciple them, help them get back where they need to be, it would be so many more packed churches in America today. Uh, that's a lot of the reasons why the church world is as weak as it is, is because instead of nour- nourishing People who are spiritually sick, we crucify people that are spiritually sick and and beat them to death. And that's not what we are called to be as Christians. We're called to be people who strengthen love and bring people back to God, not push them away from God. Number two asks, why did Moses take the bones of Joseph with him? So Moses remembered the vow made by the sons of Jacob to their brother Joseph. They would carry his bones back to the promised land once the Lord's deliverance was accomplished. Joseph had prophesied Israel's deliverance by God's hand. Adam Clark as the Israelites carried with them the bones of all twelve of the sons of Jacob, each tribe taking care of the bones of its own patriarch. While Moses took care of the bones of Joseph, St. Stephen expressly says in the book of Acts that not only Jacob but the fathers were carried from Egypt into Sichem. And you, you know, I think about the service that that took when I was studying through this. I mean, we, we care for our loved ones when they pass, and we do everything we can to honor them and respect them. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if anyone who's ever packed the bones of someone with them uh, after their, long after their passing, but yet we see that taking place here. He is fulfilling God's prophecy. He's remembering what God says and doing what God said would take place. And I think about how challenging that would be, and, I, and I, then I look at my service and, and, and the service that we should have as a church, and I think if Moses hearkens to God's word and does what he has been told to, even though to us that would seem insanely crazy, he done it anyways. But yet we see things and we say, well, you know, it's, it's cold out, I, I just don't think I can make it today, or well, um, it, it's it, it's off early in the morning. Church starts. I don't know if I can get up at early or whatever. Or, or maybe I, I can't be nice to that person because I just don't like him or whatever excuses people make anymore. Um, but yet Moses made no excuse. He'd done what God called him to do. Uh, we need to be the same way. When we uh, see something God says in his word that the church is supposed to do, it doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe the church has never done that, the local church. If we see it, we, that means God has showed it to us. It is our job to repent, pick it up, and do it. Um, we are called to take care of our widows. 
I tell you, that's something a lot of churches don't do. Um, a lot of times they'll show up on Sunday, they'll worship, they'll celebrate, but yet there is no care for the widows the way the Bible has commanded us to do. Uh, the Bible talks about learning from our, our elders, young men from the older men and young women from the older women, yet so often we see people think when they get to a certain age, they just... You know, people just quit listening, I guess, to a certain extent. And it's sad that all the knowledge that is there and that the younger generation isn't utilizing, that there should be respect and honor there, caring for the, the needy, uh, those who are unable to care for themselves. The church is supposed to pick up and to care for and to love on and show them the love of Christ. Uh, the undesirable. Man, in the Bible, they took care of lepers. Could you imagine if churches today were commanded to take care of lepers, what would happen? People would plumb, they just quit going. They say, I ain't going to do that. I'm not going. I ain't going to happen. Uh, people today don't want to visit nursing homes anymore. We see so many uh, people come up in the church world, see young preachers come up, and they refuse to go to a nursing home because it's a place of sickness. It's, it's not a real happy, uplifting place, but we are to go and take the light in to these places that they may see the love of God and see the importance of, of God. Um, but yet so oftentimes we neglect these things. We should never neglect what God has called us to do through his word. Um, if, and it's not just what preachers or teachers says, but what God's word says. If he says to do it, don't question it. doesn't matter if it's hard. doesn't matter if it's challenging. Find a way to do it. And if you can't find a way to do it, start praying. Say, Lord, open my eyes and show me my opportunity to do it. Uh, I pray every morning first period at school. That's my planning period, so I don't have anything to do first period. Well, i got lots to do first period, but I don't have any kids look at me first period. But I always make sure I take a time of devotion and I pray and I say, Lord, give me the opportunity to shine a light to my students today in some way. Because some days that light don't that opportunity don't come. But my prayer is to give me the opportunity that I may do that. And we should pray that every day for everyone we come con in contact with. Show us how to serve you more faithfully, Lord, that we can be like Moses and faithful to the letter of what the Bible says. Number three asks, what means of guidance do the Lord provide? And this is important here because it is God's direction. So oftentimes, we, all, we don't always seek God's direction. And yet, if we don't seek God's direction, it's going to be a disaster. There's no way anything can succeed without God's direction in it. And sometimes God's direction doesn't always make a whole lot of sense at first. But God is looking at the long plan and not just right now in the moment. And so often we're guilty of right here in the moment of what seems to be needed when God looks at the long picture. That's why it is so important no matter what we're doing. I don't care if you are just making a decision about what car to buy. It does not matter. We need to go to God at first in prayer and say, Lord, what, you know, what would you have me to do? Lord, what direction would you have us to take? That's why before every business meeting, we should always pray, God, give us direction, decisions that we make as a church. It's not what we think as an organization we need, but it's what you as a God think that we need or know that we need, that we can follow him and do what is best. Because remember, God knows what is best so much more than we do. 
I was asked a lot of times this week, and I don't know why. Or my kids are trying to pick careers. They're, they're, they don't really know what they're going to do with their life, and they're they are they're 18, most of them already. So they're getting a little bit nervous, as they should be. But their mom has asked me, Mr. Bazin, why did you become a teacher? And I, my answer is always because the God gave me no other choice. Um, and he really didn't. He, he narrowed me down, and I fought him on it, and I didn't want to do it. And, and I said, I don't want to do this, and I've told this here before, but... Everything I had wanted to do, looking back now, due to my back issues and other health issues and things, I could not physically do at this point. But I didn't know that when I was 19, 20 years old, but God did. And God made sure he closed all those doors, that I couldn't go through those doors I wanted to go through. He gave me a job that I can work, regardless of my health issue, pretty much. Uh, I have the opportunity to, to pastor a church. I couldn't do that with most of their jobs I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't know I was going to be a pastor at 19. I wasn't even a Christian at the age of 19. But God did know. He knew what was coming my way. And he made sure that my path was lined with his will. We need to make sure our paths remain lined with his will. And when we make a mistake and we get out of the will of God, it's not something that we should be ashamed of and say, Lord, I, you know, I just made a mess. It's all over. Just repent. The beautiful part of God is we have that reset button. That when we find ourselves in a situation where we're outside of God's will, and you're going to find that at some point in your life, you can go to God in prayer, and Jesus tells us He is our advocate. He presents our case to God, and we have forgiveness, and we start over again. The sad thing is a lot of times we don't take an opportunity, we don't start over. We just remain in that situation, and we get angry, and we get hateful, and we say, you know, I just made a mess of everything. Yeah, we all make a mess of everything, but give it to God. God is a God of grace. He's patient and long-suffering. Take his forgiveness. Get, get renewed in Christ. Walk more faithful to him. And everything works out so much better for us in the end. Number four says, what did the pillar demonstrate? God's continual presence in God. Yes. And, and folks, I don't know about you, but man, I love that. That is good stuff. I've talked to so many people that, that, that has this belief, and I don't know where the belief comes from. I guess it's traditionalism that, you know, God guides you until you make a mistake, and then he is out the door. And I thought, goodness, 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 if that was the situation, how dire a shape would all of us be in? Because there's not a day goes by that I don't make a mistake. Now, I'm not going out and, you know, and committing some grave, you know, grave sin, I guess, in the eyes of the world. But every time, you know, that I do something that's not a, th a thing of faith, I'm sinning. Anytime that I, uh, uh, for, you know, don't, I'm not in prayer, I'm sinning. And I don't know if you were not, none of us are praying enough. Anytime I take a moment to put something above God, if I take a moment away from time, I could be studying and I'm watching the football game. I'm, I'm operating in sin. Folks, there are so many things we mess up all the time. But if God was not continually there to chastise us, correct us, and get us back where we need to be, we would never, there's no way you can make it more in a second. We'd be back out in the world since we got off the altar. But thankfully, we had to have a God that is continual. He is eternal. John 3.16 says that He gave us eternal life. That He is keeping us in, the, in His hand. Uh, and there was an, an old... Something they taught us in one of these educational professional developments where it talked about a young man and his daughter walking. And the young man told his daughter to hold his hand. And the young lady said, No, Daddy, hold my hand. And he said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, if I, if, if, if the little girl said, if I hold your hand, I may make a mistake and let go. But if you hold my hand, I trust you'll always hold on. And it's the same thing with God. If, if, I am, if my salvation and my relationship with God is resting upon my ability to make good decisions, 
it's not going to be very it's not going to go very long but the bible tells us that my relationship with god is in his hand that nothing can pluck me out of it i have the assurity that he is my father and i am his child and that will be eternal and you don't, folks, are, you, you can't get a better deal than that. That the God of the universe has ensured and secured you to him at the moment of salvation. That when you are born again, conceived in Christ, you are his. And he is going to direct you. He's going to chastise you. He's going to correct you. He's going to put you back on the right path. He's going to take care of you. And man, if that ain't enough to just absolutely get you excited for God, I don't know what can. Because I mean, to me, that's just awesome to know that I can't mess this up. Because I can mess up about anything. But I cannot mess up my relationship with God. Number five asks, where did the Lord tell Moses the people were to encamp? The people probably felt that their troubles with the Egyptians were finally over, but the Lord now warns Moses that Pharaoh's heart will be hardened one last time against them. Therefore, the Lord directed Moses to encamp the people between Paroth, the name perhaps signifying the mouth or bay of Haroth, on the shore of the Red Sea and Migdal, a fortified tower. They camped against the temple fortress of an idol called Belzephon, which means master of the watch. This location was purposely selected by God because it afforded the people no escape once the Egyptian army arrived. All the Egyptians would need to do to corner them would be station themselves at the mouth of the valley between these two fortified positions. And, and you know, God, he takes this situation here as the most, probably the most dire situation they could be in. But God wanted to ensure in the end he would be the one that is recognized in all this. He is the one that will receive the glory in all this. The Israelites could may have been very prideful people, as we see in these later verses. They may have been uh, very. They may have started trying to worship Moses. If you aren't careful, as you have people who worship um, different TV preachers and evangelists or pastors or whatever, uh, they may start worshiping man. But when this happened, it all goes back to God. God was ensuring that with with these Egyptians, that the Egyptians would notice that it was him that gets the glory and no one else. And that gets us into question six. What was the Lord's purpose in having the people set up their camp there? So we see here, it's easier for people to make excuses of things and try to take credit away from God. And you see it all the time. You'll have a great miracle happen. And all of a sudden, people come out of the woodworks and say, well, I think science done this, this, and this. Or because this person done that, they want to rob God of all the glory that they possibly can because that's in, it's in man's nature. We've, people have done it since Adam and Eve in the garden. However, God was going to ensure in this case that he is the one that receives all credit. It's amazing how much stronger, how much greater a move of God you see when everything points back to God. Uh, when revivals take place, 
When revival, revival takes place and, and you allow all the credit to rest upon God, a, not just a re, three nights of meetings, but a true Holy Ghost Spirit-filled revival, it, you'll see such a greater move of God because God is the one receiving glory. Not a group of people, not a, a evangelist, not singers, not anything else, but holy resting upon God. Um, we can go... And, and I think of this often because you know, a lot of times you think, well, you know, we wish you these people, you get so and so to come out to church, or wish you get this one to come out to church. And I think oftentimes, you know, maybe we, if we could do this, maybe we could do that. And then I, God reminds me very quickly: the best thing you can do is pray and love, pray and love, invite people, love people, encourage people, and pray. Because man cannot force anyone to do anything. That, uh, yeah, we could trick people to walk into the front of a church to an altar kneeling down, but it wouldn't amount to a hill of beans if God don't bring them. Uh, it all rests back on God. Um, you know, the Bible says that one man planteth, another man uh, watereth, and God giveth the increase. You notice that, you know, only God can give. Any man that is called can plant. Any man that is saved can water. But only God can give that increase. So the glory has to always rest upon God and return back to God. Just as with these setting free of the Israelites, there was opportunity. The Pharaoh could have said, "Well, you know, maybe my, maybe our God was, you know, taking a nap at that moment, and, and God just got one up on us." But in this situation, it can't be done. It's all going to go back to God of the Bible. Yeah, and and we and and today the modern church, they're very quick to point out, but the bad, but they're so slow to point out the good. I mean, yeah, we can find bad in anything. Anything you want to look at bad at, you can find bad. You can take the most beautiful cake you've ever ate, and you can it could be just so delicious. You can say, well, could use a little more sugar. Well, I didn't like that icing so well. It wasn't my favorite. You can always point out bad. It's easy to say, well, you know, the pews aren't full. Well, you know, the singing wasn't so good. Now, well, the, well, the message was a little bit off. It's easy to find negative. As long as man's involved, you're going to find. You can say, well, my life is so, I got such financial issues, or I, this is how that. But, you know, look at all the good. Focus on the good. Someone asks you how you're doing, don't just start spouting off bad automatically off the bat. Look at the good. Amen. None of us may be rich. We all got houses over our head. We got food on the table. We we're not freezing to death. I mean, there it could be a whole lot worse. God has been good to us, and we need to sometimes focus more on that than on all this all this negative jag that people say. Well, where's their God at? Where's He at? Um, number seven. What preparations did Pharaoh make to overtake the Israelites? So Pharaoh readies his personal chariot, ready 600 select chariots and all the remaining chariots of Egypt at his disposal. With these, he sets out to pursue his un insubordinate slaves in order to punish their rebellion against him and compel them to return in their bondage to Egypt. And again, we must ask ourselves, and this is one of the questions in my book, why did Pharaoh decide to chase him here? And Lyle touched on a little bit with the fact that they, he felt maybe God had abandoned them because they were out there wandering around in the wilderness just confused and and didn't know what to, what to do maybe next, but you know and we look at that and, and I think the Pharaoh is attacking them when he feels they're at their weakest. The devil does this as well. 
The devil will make you a little bit aggravated on the mountaintop. But when you're at your lowest of low, that's when the devil starts whispering these things in your ear. About you know, he finds your most weakest, whatever. Maybe you have a problem. Maybe you had a prompt alcohol sometime in your life, and you get down to a weak spot, and you say, you know, you need to get to have a drink, or maybe you have a problem with with uh, whatever, whatever your issue may be, and he'll fake pit you in your weakest of moment, and also he'll start whispering those thoughts in your ear. Where's God at? Things like that. Things that you, in your strong point, you wouldn't allow the devil to get in your head and talk to you like that. You would automatically start quoting scripture and you would denounce him and everything else. But now you're in your weak point. Maybe you went through death. Maybe you went through loss of a job. Maybe you went through financial trouble, health issues, whatever. And the devil wants you to start questioning your faith. But those are the times when we need to lean on God more. When I was at my weakest point, uh, probably in my spiritual walk, a, a good pastor friend of mine, and I'm very thankful God has given me good pastors that we can lean on each other when we struggle and when, when, we, when we need a little help along the way. And he told me, that reminded me of the prophet in the Bible that talked about that. He went underneath uh, the tree and was resting there and he had given up on everything and life had just been uh, horrible at that point. And I don't want to get into all the background of it because it's a long story. But he basically asked God to take his life. And at that point he fell asleep. And God sends an angel down with, with manna, and he wakes him up, and the angel feeds him that manna and strengthens him, and he falls back asleep, and the angel allows him to. And the angel wakens him at a certain point and gives him water and reminds him that, yes, in you, none of this, a lot of this is going to be too much to handle. The biggest lie, for some reason, that's taught very famously is that God will not give you more than you can bear. There is no truth in that that is not biblical on any level. Because God will often allow you to take more than you can bear, but he will not allow you to go through more than he can bear. You see, when we get more than we can bear, that should drive us to give it to him and allow him to help us shoulder the burden instead of trying to do it all on our own because we can't do it on our own. We will. One of the reasons the suicide rates and drug rates are so high in America today is people are trying to do it on their own. But the minute they allow God to help them with their situation, the minute they rest in him and realize that 9% of these things we're worrying about we can't control anyways... Life becomes so much easier, so much simpler, so much joy comes back to you because you're getting taking that burden off you and allow it to rest on God where God wants it to be. God wants to take your burden, but so often we don't allow Him to do it. We try to take it on ourselves. Folks, if you got burdens in your life, you need to give them to God. Allow God to take care of these burdens. Realize He can work anything out, and you can't work nothing out for the most part, neither can I, but God can take these things and, and, and deal with them and not allow the devil to thump on you just because you're weak, you're beaten down, and you're tired. Because he will do it if you give him that opportunity. You give him an answer, the devil will take your whole life. Number eight. What does Israel leaving with a high hand mean? Yeah. And and folks, let me let me warn you of this. Don't ever allow anything to get you in that state, because man, the wheels will fall off real quick. Pride cometh before the fall. Um, even in the church world, I, I've seen churches that are just so vibrant, and the Lord is moving, and you can just feel the Spirit moving in the church. And all of a sudden, they start talking about how awesome they are, and how they done this, and they done that, and start taking the glory away from God. And what happens? Next thing you know, it becomes flatter and flatter. People start going by the wayside, the numbers start dropping, you don't see people getting saved like they once did, all because the credit has been robbed away from God and given to them. It's the same thing. There's a very fine line even when we do outreach as a church. Yes, we should we should be 
uh, thankful for the opportunity to help people and to do outreach. And when you talk to people and they say, hey, what's going on at the church? It's good to say, hey, you know, we, we were blessed to get to, to help 30-some people with food this week. But when the moment we say, we help 30-some people, if you're not careful, you can rob God the glory. We, we should brag about what God is doing through the church, but make sure we always point back to God. Um, there was an outreach ministry one time I was invited, I was encouraged to help with, and I did to a certain extent, until I found out that the money was going to go to a non-religious organization to hand out the, the, the materials. And yes, we should help people, period, but when you're helping people and robbing God of the credit in it, it's really not a ministry at that point. It's good something good to do, but how much more effective is it when you do it as a loving thing given from God? Uh, we should always pray that with our food pantries and the, our giveaways and stuff, that people don't just see you know Mountaineer, Mountaineer Missionary Baptist Church that's doing something nice, but we they see the love that God has for them, that is blessing them and helping them, um, and that God receives the credit and the honor. So anytime you do anything, do it to the glory of God. Um, I've went with. When I become pastor, I had to do certain sick visits and going to hospitals and stuff. I read a book about how to properly do that, and one of the first things it said was make sure at any opportunity you mention God, mention Jesus. Uh, don't just go in and and, you, and have a good conversation. That's good, but try to give the opportunity to give them a little scripture. Give give it to God as much as you can, and we sit with all things. Someone's come to your house to visit. Thanksgiving's coming. Family's coming. What better opportunity for possibly unsaved family to sit at your dinner table? Folks, ask, say grace over that meal. Try to plant a little bit of the gospel in there somewhere. Throw a little seed out. You never know what may grow. So I'll close with the, with, with this. Um, several, a couple years ago, and I've, I've told this story before, but man, it, that's just weird. Uh, the old red house was there beside my house, and that's where I threw, generally just threw things I didn't want, like pumpkins or, or leftover veggies. I'd toss them in the old red house because I knew it was going to sit there and some animal would probably eat it. Well, I said he had a jack-o'-lantern. And when the jack lantern became unusable, it started to rot, I took it and chucked it under the rubble of the old red house. And I noticed, uh, Kathy and PJ was up, and I noticed that, that, that around October that there was something orange out there. And I said, I threw a bucket out there and forgot about it. I went to go and get that bucket. So one day after work, shirt, tie, the whole works, I think I had, even had a suit coat on at that time, I go walking through the rubble of this old red house to collect this bucket. And here I look, and it's not a bucket, but a huge, massive pumpkin grew out of all that rubble. Now, I didn't do anything to, to make that pumpkin grow as I was chucking old dead pumpkin underneath that rubble. And this big, gorgeous pumpkin grew out of it. But I thought it shows what God can do with just a little bit of seed. You never know. And again, I didn't water it. I didn't nurture it. I didn't do anything to it. You may never see people again for another year. But if you plant a little bit of seed, God may bring someone else down the road to water that seed. And God may have someone else to give it a little bit of nurturing. And then God may give the increase down the line. You may have a beautiful soul saved to the glory of God just because you threw that seed out there. So again, don't doubt what God can do. We thank you for coming out and being with us this morning. Have the opportunity, if you enjoy some good bluegrass gospel music, come out tonight. Uh, bluegrass gospel, heart will be singing. Uh, they, they stay pretty booked up.